so last night Bob went to go see uh, Case for Christ. It's in the theaters now. Um, it's based on the book of the same title, which is kind of the life story of Lee Strobel. He was a um, atheist reporter. I think he worked maybe for like the Chicago Times or something like that. It's a scripted version of his life story about his conversion. It's basically about how he investigated the claims of Christianity. It's particularly relevant for our class right now. That's why I thought it would be a good homework assignment. Because the thing that he's focusing on is investigating the resurrection. And so there's a lot of things that we've studied in the class that are incorporated into the movie. And you can see the role that they played in, in his conversion. Um, one of our founding board members at the ministry that I work for is featured in the film. Oh, yeah. uh, I believe so. Uh, Dr. Dr. Alex Methrell, the inventor of CAT scan technology, um, who is also an expert on, a medical expert on the crucifixion. Hmm. And in the film, Lee Strobel goes to, comes to Los Angeles to talk to Alex um, about the resurrection and whether the description of the Roman crucifixion is credible in the gospel accounts. And he kind of gives a medical perspective on that. Some of the things that um, in the clip we watched last week with Jay Warner Wallace, he got a lot of that. He talked about hidden science. Remember that? A lot of that stuff he got from Dr. Methrell um, in his treatment of that. So anyways... Okay, so last week we uh, started a discussion about the resurrection. So I wanted to wrap that up today uh, since next week is Easter. So I wanted to talk about the very um, common question that unbelievers bring up, and that is about the contradictions in the resurrection accounts. So if you remember this little chart we had uh, some time back, and this is kind of representing our web of beliefs as a Christian, and there's many aspects to our faith, and they're all interconnected. I had made the suggestion several weeks ago that the, really the resurrection is the critical event that lies at the core of our belief system, and what we might call our mega-beliefs that this is directly tied to the historical accuracy of the gospel accounts. And that this, these two features are really at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian and to answer the question of, is Christianity true? Which is an infinitely more important question than the question of, is Christianity help me live a meaningful life? Because as we've been talking about, there's, many options that can help us have a meaningful life. But the core question is, is Christianity true? And if Jesus truly rose from the dead, and that is a historical fact, which I believe is the greatest event in human history, that certain things follow from that. And that he has demonstrated his, his power over death. So let's look at a few of the most common contradictions. So you're gonna need your, your Bibles today. We're going to kind of do the first two together in class, and then I'm going to have you do one together in, in uh, table groups. So we're going to look at the question of what did the sign say on the cross first? 
So we're going to turn to, I think all of our scriptures are kind of in the same four chapters today. Okay, so let's first look at Matthew 27, 37 to 38. It's really just 37. Okay. So, Mr. Gady, do you have that? All right, why don't you read that to us? All right, Jesus, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Okay. All right, let's go over to Mark 16, or Mark 15, 26. Charge against him read, the King of the Jews. Okay, so that's a little shorter, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. Okay, let's look at Luke. 2338. 2338. I must have had a pasting error. All right. Thank you. 2338. So you can make that correction. Yeah. Uh, Brian, you have that? There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Okay. So this is the king of the Jews. But are you noticing a pattern there of what's the same? Okay. John... 19, verse 19. Okay, Laura Hartley. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Okay, so each one says something slightly different, doesn't it? So how do we reconcile this? Because if they're all eyewitnesses, wouldn't you expect that they would all be the same? This is what the skeptic would say. So, how could we reconcile? What did that sign say above Jesus' head? King of the Jews. Jews. We have Matthew and John, though, that mention his name. What do we do with that? He interviewed eyewitnesses to put forth an accurate account of these things. So how do we think about these differences? Human error. Human error? Well, how would that affect our view of Scripture as being the error-free word of God? It's interesting that... No, I think you might be onto something there. So say that again. Well, then I'm going with her. So it's like, you know, his name is Jesus, but then under had the king of the Jews in Aramaic, king of the Jews in yeah. Latin, like in, in Latin, Greek. and then in Greek. Um, okay. Because it's the descriptor. So name is name, no matter what language. Right? Okay. So the first part is his name, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the second part is the, is the claim, the king of the Jews. So what does, do they all have in common? The king of the Jews. So that's the part of it that they all agree on. Right? So then how do we reconcile these two other statements that include his name? This is Jesus. Are they, do they contradict each other? Does it any, do any of these accounts say this is the only thing it said on the sign? No. No. It just said this is what it said on the sign. Did all of the signs say king of the Jews? 
One reported a little bit more. This is the most exhaustively complete report, possibly. The, the second most exhaustively complete is this one. And then these two are virtually the same. These, these quotation marks are uh, an artifact of the Bible translator. There's no quotation marks in, in Greek. So I highly doubt that the sign said this is. Maybe it did. But it could be that the quotation marks started with Jesus of what the sign says. That's a little bit ambiguous. Might have said that. I got Jesus there in Matthew and John's account. So here's one possibility is it said this is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews that reconciles all of them together potentially is what the sign said but they don't exactly contradict each other not necessarily I think we're talking more about I think that Mrs. Gady's point of the eyewitnesses were emphasizing what was the most important thing and that is the title of the king of the Jews. And that's what... That's what's disputed. That's what caused an uprising. Exactly. So tiny differences, but we want to... The, the skeptic is going to come at us and say, well, your claim is that the Bible is the error-free word of God. So these should all be exactly the same. Right? But the... But, our claim is not that the Bible is exhaustively complete in every, in every instance. Yeah. Remember what in the clip last week with uh, J. Warner Wallace, when he's talking about the nature of conspiracies. And when people start repeating the same, the same story with the same words, it sounds rehearsed. It sounds like they've colluded, right? But when you have these tiny differences, that makes it sound more authentic, actually, that it's reflecting people's actual accounts. All right, let's do one more here. How many women ran to the tomb? This is a very common one that skeptics bring up is Matthew 28. So let's look at Matthew 28, verse 1. You have that? All right, go ahead, Laura. Okay, so here we have two Marys, Mary Magdalene, and how, yeah, this very unfortunate name, the other Mary, sort of like their early Gilligan's Island episodes, and the rest, you know, preserved for all of history, the other Mary. Which one of us would be the other Laura? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Laura and the other Laura. Okay, so then let's look at uh, Mark 16, verse 1. Um, yeah, Steve. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and work. Very good. So here again, we have Mary Magdalene. We have a Mary who is named this time, Mary the mother of James. And then we have Salome. All right, let's go to Luke 24. Lamise, do you have that? Mm -hmm. Okay. With Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. Okay. So this time we've got Mary Magdalene again. 
Joanna and the others. And Mary, the mother of James. Thank you. So there we've seen Mary, the mother of James again. So this kind of seems maybe this is the other Mary mentioned in Matthew, possibly. Okay, let's do uh, John 20 real quick. Okay, go ahead. Very good. So here we only have Mary Magdalene mentioned. So who's the one figure that we have in all four accounts? Mary Magdalene. So we know that she really is prominent as a key eyewitness to the resurrection because she is mentioned by all four gospel writers, which I find very interesting. And then we have this other Mary, possibly Mary, the mother of James. So, and then in uh, Luke 24, we have, and the other women. So who are these, these other women? Well, possibly it's Salome. We have Joanna mentioned specifically in Luke. So, you know, maybe there were four, possibly five women who went to the tomb that, that morning. And I think it's fascinating to me, given their culture, um, that the women were first. And that, you know, they were the early risers and they were up to go tend to the body um, that early. So how do we reconcile this? So I think it's pretty easy. Mary Magdalene is the, is the mentioned in all four Gospels. Mary, the mother of James, and the other women, including at least Salome and Joanna. The one that is probably the most difficult is the John 20 account, where Mary Magdalene is the only one mentioned. Um, But it seems that John is focusing his account on just that one one person. Um, So anyways, these are very common... Question. So if we're making the claim, and there is, the reason I'm bringing this up is because if we are making the claim that the resurrection is a pivotal event in our faith, we have to think about potential defeaters to that, right? And these contradictions are often seen as potential defeaters, that, that it is something that undermines the credibility of the accuracy of Scripture, so that's why I'm kind of bringing this up today. I've got a great clip from our friend Jay Warner Wallace about the nature of eyewitness accounts, which you're already intuitively kind of thinking about as we've been talking about this. Now, one of the most fascinating things you talk about is the interconnectedness, unintentional interconnectedness right. of the Gospels. Explain how that works. This is really interesting. Yeah, let me just toss this out to you guys. Have you guys noticed how your Gospels don't match? They're not precise. Give me give you an example. How many women run to the tomb of Jesus on the day, the first Sunday? How many women? Yell it out. Two? Three? Depends on the gospel. Really? How many angels are waiting for the women when they get there? Come on. Two? One? It depends on the gospel. Where there's two, there's always one. That's true. Uh, but think about, how about this, though? There's a sign over the cross of Jesus. I think it has six words, five, six words. 
Four Gospels record that sign. Do any of those Gospels agree with each other about what the sign says? No. And you trust those Gospels. You trust them as reliable eyewitness accounts when they have so many variants and disagreements between the Gospels. I've had professors challenge their, their students in college. And by the way, if you are in the age of 15 to 30, this, the culture sees you as low-hanging fruit. They really do, because they know in that age group, about 60 to 70% of you will walk away from the church in those years. Only a third will ever return. We are shrinking as a group, and it's happening in that demographic. And I remember one guy said, I left because my professor simply challenged me to read the resurrection story, the, nativity, the, uh, the Passion Week, in all four Gospels, and just compare them to one another. And when I did that, I realized they are very different. And he walked away. Well, I'm here to tell you something, okay? When I read that for the first time as a skeptic, I was like, wow, I'm starting to think this is actually true information. Because if you've ever worked with witnesses, you know one rule of witnesses. They never, ever agree. Ever. It could happen five minutes ago. Someone could come up here, and I used to run this experiment in front of my youth group. Someone would run up, slap me on the side of the head, and run off the stage. And I would ask everyone on a car, don't talk to each other, just tell me, what did you just see? You wouldn't believe the variation between the accounts. They just saw it together. We were all together. They couldn't even agree on the sex of the perpetrator. <laughs> Think about that. But did the event really happen? Of course. What is my job as a detective is to figure out why you say it one way and he says it another way. So I always say this. If, if there was a robbery in this room and I wanted to know what was the guy wearing, you think I'm going to ask him? No way. I'm going to ask her. Because he's going to say, I don't know, like a T-shirt maybe? Dark T-shirt? She's going to say, oh, no, no, no. It's like an Izod T-shirt. You know the one that has the band that's tight right about halfway here? And the limp collar shirt, not the straight collar shirt, three buttons stopped right around here? What is that about? Well, he just, she just bought three of those for him last week for some, and so she actually gets it. She, that's why you ask her that question, right? And, and if they disagree on the description of the shirt, it doesn't mean that there was no shirt or no suspect. It just means that they're coming at it from different perspectives. My job is to figure out what the perspectives are. So when I read the Gospels and I saw that these things would sometimes leave out details, like Luke will say, Jesus is in front of Caiaphas at a trial, and they're testing Jesus, so they think, you know, you think you're divine, you think you're God, how about this? So someone slaps him and says, tell us, Jesus, who prophesied? Who slapped you? And I'm thinking, how hard is that? I would just look at the guy and say, you did, you moron, right? I mean, how hard is it to tell you who slapped me? Because Luke doesn't describe the fact that Matthew describes that before this whole thing started, they put a blindfold on Jesus. Luke never mentions it. So his statement's actually kind of confusing until you get the other eyewitness account. And that's what it is in our cases all the time. I see this in my professional work constantly. One confusing statement clarified by another witness. And you see this all the time. And that's time. a form of corroboration, isn't it? Oh, and absolutely. It's just the nature. So what bothered me was I was not a believer, but I was reading the, the Gospels. And when I saw that kind of thing in the Gospels, I was like, ugh, this looks suspiciously like real eyewitness accounts. Because look, if I'm trying to create this fiction, I'm going to work that stuff mm -hmm. out. Yeah. 
right? I'm going to work that stuff out so there's no, no question about it. But if you work real cases, you see that those little, you know, warts and pimples on the account are still there. And that's what I was seeing in the eyewitness accounts. And it, just, it just struck me as I should probably go a little further with this. And, and the fact that these were unplanned, apparently. I mean, it, it just, they fit together yes. um, in an unintentional, unintentional way. way. So, for example, why is it at the feeding of 5,000, I think Jesus asks Philip, Philip, where can we go to feed these people? You know, Philip is a minor character in the Gospels. You, Jesus never asks Philip for anything. He's going to ask Simon, right? He's going to ask somebody. He's not going to, the top three. He's not going to ask Philip. Who the heck is Philip? You never get from that account why it is he would ask Philip until you read the other accounts and realize they're in Bithynia where Philip was raised. The one person who could actually answer that question would be Philip. But you'd never know from that first account. You had to kind of do your homework, right, and see why do these eyewitnesses say certain things. And when I started to do that, I was like, wow, mm. this stuff is bugging me. I think that the Bible is, is pretty remarkable because it has two authors. It has the human author and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to transcend the human element a lot of the time. He, you can tell a clear difference uh, you know, when you take second year Greek in seminary, the first place they have you start doing your little translations because you only know like a hundred words is John because he's very clear and he likes to use certain vocabulary over and over again. And he has a very certain writing style. You don't ever start out a beginning Greek student in the epistles. That is some of the most complicated Greek that there is, is translating Paul. And Luke style is very educated and it's very pristine and perfect. He's like, it's like reading somebody who's a, you know, like an English professor. It's just the, the, the grammar is, is just very pristine. The Holy Spirit does not seem to overcome people's natural personalities. And in this case, I don't think he over, he, he, the concern is to iron everything out to make it be one. He, he's willing to work with humans in their own personalities and in their own um, eyewitness perspectives of things. And that is what is preserved in scripture. And I think that the, the cooperation between the divine and humanity is, is really... Um, interesting, the more that you get into the details of the text, you really start to appreciate this when you start learning the languages behind the text. It really starts standing out to me. Like when I first started studying um, Genesis 1 to 3 in Hebrew as part of my job, and I was really starting to go back and rethink a lot of the things that I had thought I knew, and I was really started looking at the Hebrew in detail. It was like, Wow, there is a lot here that you don't get in the, the English translations. So I think that our appreci my appreciation has definitely grown for the human element behind Scripture. Um, the more that I've learned of the original languages. Um, the, the translators tend to flatten that out. You, don't, you can't really tell the difference a lot of times between the different authors' voices. But it's like if you read a novel, if you're really into novels and you read something by Stephen King and then you read something by Lynn Austin, you know that those are like just way different 
types of authors and the voices are different and the tone is different and they're just they're different people what i'm trying to get at here is just to have an appreciation for the nature of eyewitness accounts and what we're really saying for that when we say that and it's so funny that you should mention that very example because there was another clip that i had of jay warner wallace describing that very scenario of a of a holdup in a convenience store and he was talking about how different witnesses see it differently. And he had the same scenario of like one witness notices the clothes. Another witness notices the weapon. Another witness notices what the other witnesses are doing. And, you know, and I couldn't find that clip for anything. <laughs> and so I found this one. But that was the one I was really looking for because it was such a, it was such a good one. But that was the very same scenario that he pointed out. Yeah, I want you to kind of... Work in teams. If you're by yourself, get with someone else who's by themselves. I don't want to take a lot of time to do this. But this question of how many angels were at the tomb. So look up the scriptures really quick. Do two things. Make a list of the key areas of agreement between the accounts. Where do they agree? And propose possible resolutions to these this problem because I don't plan on going home with you and resolving all your Bible difficulties. <laughs> so when we think about areas of agreement, like in the, the clip that we saw with Jay Warner Wallace, he gave the example of somebody slapping him in the face. That was sort of the, the event, you know, like everyone agreed on that. So what are some areas of agreement between the accounts? The tomb had a large stone rolled away. All right. There was a tomb. Uh, no body, stone, there was a stone and it was rolled away. Okay, so who were the first eyewitnesses? Women. Women. So none of the accounts like have Peter getting there first or anything like that, right? There was at least one angel. Okay, angels present. Anything else? There seems to be that there was an angel on the outside that rolled the tomb away, the stone away, but there were at least one, possibly two, one inside. Okay. So we kind of have this whole inside-outside motif. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's agreement in that some action took place outside, some took place inside. So I would say just in general that there was action in both places. What happened is more tricky. Okay, so we've got how many angels? Seems like in Matthew, we've got one angel sitting outside the tomb. Mark, one angel sitting inside the tomb. Uh, in Luke, two angels appear after the women arrive at the tomb. In John's account, we have the very different account of Mary Magdalene arriving at the tomb, seeing the body is missing, runs to get Peter. Then she comes back later and she sees two angels sitting in, in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot. So our areas of agreement, uh, oh, we didn't get the first day of the week. That was something that agreed. That was Sunday. And the time of day, it was early. There were women, Mary Magdalene was prominent. 
The stone was rolled away. There were angelic messengers. And the women go back to report to the disciples. This is another key point of agreement. So there's several... There's several points of agreement on the major features of the story, right? But then we get into some differences. And the question is, is how do we account for those differences? I think the best explanation is different eyewitnesses seeing the account differently or emphasizing different moments of the account. So are the accounts mutually exclusive of one another? That's really the critical question. Um, does Matthew ever say that there was only one angel? No. So there could have been more. It's just he chose to emphasize one, possibly, or that eyewitness only focused on just the one who spoke. Do you guys have any ideas for how to reconcile this? Yolanda, your idea was what? There's one outside? said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. So they imply that Mary and the women got there before mm. the tomb was, the stone was rolled away, right? But then we would have to assume if the stone hasn't rolled yet, the guards are there still. Yeah. He's not, so we know from another account that the men got scared and ran off, right? Yeah. So maybe the women saw this whole thing happening. Or at least we don't know when Mary got there and the other Mary got there. Very good. So what I kind of want you to rest in is starting to notice these details, right? That some of these things are, you have to be a little bit of a detective. And maybe you've never looked at these resurrection accounts quite this way before. And to understand that because we are making the claim that this is such a central feature of our faith, that for some people, this is, this is a very real issue. And that skeptics will often use these very things um, on young people to really confuse them. And so you want to think about these details. Jim was like a master at doing these sorts of reconciliations. He, he loved to, to revel in working out all of those details. It's not something that I enjoy so much. But I think that what's important is to see all of the events that this, the accounts agree upon, the major things. And that the differences are looking like their differences in terms of the eyewitnesses. And that there has to be some work that's done on putting these things together sequentially. Yeah, that John 20 actually happened earlier than, than the other visits. That was his way of reconciling it. So I'm just going to kind of round this out here. We're a little over time, and I want to just end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he has a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. This is a very famous passage from his classic Mere Christianity. And I think that's really what I'm hoping you're going to walk away with, is that if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he claimed to be. He proved it by rising from the dead. And that it is at that point that we have to come into some sort of circumspect understanding of our relationship with him and who we are before him. And it, the resurrection demands a response. It demands a response because it is, in my opinion, the most pivotal moment in human history. We're going to pray, and then Yolanda's going to give us a quick announcement, and then we're going to, we're going to go. Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I ask today that you would help us to be brave in the next couple of weeks as we might be meeting with friends and family over the Easter holiday to listen for your voice and to step into the risks that you have for us in talking to and ministering to our oikos, but also in those just those drive-by Holy Spirit moments where we can be a light in a dark place and we can bring the power of the resurrection that is in us to be made manifest on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.